This is Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 23. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Let me pray for us. Lord, guide us now. Um, teach us, uh, Lord. Um, there's so much in, this, uh, in these seven verses or ten verses um, that uh, I know if we really fully understood and and leaned into, Lord, it would transform uh, every aspect of our lives. So uh, would you, by your grace, illuminate uh, this truth uh, to us? Uh, help us see how remarkably practical it is um, what you've done, who you are, and how that affects uh, our standing uh, before you and our standing in this world. So lead us, Holy Spirit. Uh, teach us, uh, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, have a seat. I was watching, or uh, I, I, I started watching a bit of a movie that I'd watched before. Uh, um, it's not a super popular movie. It's called Act of Valor. You guys, anybody seen the movie Act of Valor? It's about uh, Navy SEALs, and um, the beginning of the movie is, a, is a, a, a voice of a father reading a letter to his son, and this father, you come to find out, has passed away in the movie. And he's reading, it's this powerful poem uh, that he's written for his son, and he's reading it to his son because he knows he's not around. Uh, he's, it's his unborn son that he's written this poem to. And he, he wants him to know these things that are true about him from his father. So the movie begins and ends with this poem, uh, and it's, it's powerful. And um, this idea of I'm, I'm writing something to you because I want you to so fully understand and remember who you are as my son and as my child, and I'm not going to be around necessarily physically to tell you that, but you have to remember this stuff, or life, life's going to be impossible without knowing this stuff. This is where we find Paul uh, writing to the Colossian church. He's writing to them as people he's never met and uh, may never meet, but he's fighting for them, and he's, he's contending for them to continue to grow into and mature into what is most true about them, which is what Christ has done for them. And there's a war going on in their hearts and their minds and in their culture for that truth and, and minimizing that truth. And he's saying, I'm, I'm fighting, I'm contending, I'm struggling for you to not swap out relationship with Jesus for religion. 
He's saying, I'm, I'm contending for you to not um, put down the grace uh, of God and how that transforms your heart and, and instead pick up religious effort. I, don't do that. Because what was happening for the Colossian church is they were taking what Christ had accomplished entirely for them. And they were making it something like, it was like they were taking it, which is, it's, it's the whole ladder, right? Everything's been done for you in Christ. And they were treating Christ and what he had done like the first rung on the ladder. It's simply the starting process of us through our religious effort now kind of ascending to a spiritual place with God. And that may sound really like, oh man, I'm not sure I'm doing that. But I know for me, and my parents never said this to me, but I grew up in a, in a place, in a culture where practically how, how my faith with the Lord played itself out was this. Jesus died for you, right? Which is kind of like he hit a reset button, you know? Kind of, yeah, it was really bad. And then he pressed a reset button. And now here's your second chance. So Jesus died for you. Now spend the rest of your life proving to him that he made a good decision, right? And ultimately earning that, like, I'm going to earn back what he gave to me freely by grace. That's functionally how a lot of my life has been and a lot of what I've even understood church to be, right? And Paul's saying, no, <laughs> please, please, please do not do that. Don't go down that path because it's not going to lead where you think it's going to lead. So there are three things that I want us to consider out uh, of this passage, and there's plenty more than three in here, but we don't have the time to go through all of these in depth. Um, one is this, Paul, in the very beginning, 15 through 20, is arguing, I, I, you desperately need to see Jesus for who he truly is and why that matters, okay? So first thing we're going to talk about is, do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Do you have a proper view of him? Because if you do, the second thing we're going to talk about is, is I can't have a proper view of myself unless I first start with a proper view of him. So do I see him for who he truly is? Do I see myself for who I truly was and who I truly am now in him? And then the third thing, uh, if we get to it in time, uh, we'll talk about uh, the evidence that you have been seen by Jesus because there's fruit that comes along with this new identity of I see him for who he truly is. I see myself now for who I truly am. That changes something about how I live my life, okay? So those are the things we're going to talk about. Do we see who he truly is? So what, right? What, why are these first, I mean, I'll reread some of this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things on heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, we could probably stop and preach a sermon on each one of those things, but th this is, um, have you ever seen like an induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I think I remember when like U2 got inducted and they had Bruce Springsteen, maybe. He might have done their induction, but... What Paul is doing here is he's standing up here. It's like, a, it's like in a boxing ring where, like, the, the thing drops down, and he says, what, what do they say? Yeah, let's get ready to rumble. And he goes, in this corner, right? And what is he doing? I mean, he's basically, he is dropping Jesus' record in this moment. He's saying, this is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. And, and 
the big word, I mean, there's lots of things in there, but the word we should key up in is the word all. He just keeps saying all this and all this and all this and all this because he's saying he is supreme in every single way possible conceivable. He's everything. He is God in flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God eternal. That means he was preexistent before creation. And by the way, creation happened through Jesus and it was for Jesus. And all of creation still today holds together because of Jesus. He's powerful. He's the firstborn over the new creation. He sustains and he holds all things together. He's everything. He's the total package. Right? Do we see him for who he truly is? Let's just take one of these things that he says about Jesus and kind of tease it out, okay? He says he's the image of God. Right? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That word there, image, is translated, you could translate it, and it is translated as the word for a portrait, right? So we see him uh, in a portrait sense, but it's, it's much deeper than just like, hey, I've got this picture of, of who God is here in a portrait sense. It's more than just a visual. It actually means... His very being, his very self, his very character. It's not just that he looks like Jesus. It's that he acts and is entirely the same as God. It's not he's like God. It's saying he is God incarnate. When Philip asked Jesus about this in John 14, right before he promises the Holy Spirit, he's saying, I'm the way and the truth and the life. He says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. What's he saying to Philip? He's saying, there's, there's no difference between God the Father and me, right? Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a, a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He's the image of God. I was sharing my story of adoption with a couple. Um, some of you know that I'm adopted. Uh, some of you don't. Now you know. I'm adopted. I was sharing that story with a couple uh, and was talking about meeting my birth family and some of the uh, realities that kind of emerge from meeting somebody uh, who you didn't know for 40 years, and now all of a sudden you're meeting them and you're realizing, wow, this is a lot of why I am who I am. And this couple has a daughter uh, who has a child. She's a single mom. And the father uh, has not been in the picture since the pregnancy. Uh, has been completely uninvolved with the child, and the, and the boy's 10 now. And the grandparents were commenting as we were talking about my adoption. They were saying, um, man, when I see our grandson walk and when I hear him talk, because they, they knew the birth father. They still know who he is. They knew him well before uh, she got pregnant. Our grandson, he looks and he talks and he walks like his dad. And then they said, but now that he's getting older and he's starting to get interested in things, even his interests and his attitudes and just the very ways that he, he kind of thinks we see his father. And they were saying, uh, isn't that crazy? He's never met his father. And he's in many ways just like him. And I was sitting there laughing, one, because I've had some similar experiences in my own life, but two, I was saying it's because his father is in him. 
right? It, it's because his father's blood is in him. It's who he is. It's not just, hey, he kind of looks like him. His father is literally in him. And why Paul is making this case, why he's spending this time, he's not just kind of doing the boxing announcer like, look how great Jesus is. He's trying to see and have us see how important it is for us to understand this is who he is because if that's true, if that's who he is, the same then is true of us, right? Something very, very significant is true about us now because we have, it says there, through his blood, right? Through his blood, he's made peace through his blood shed on the cross. We have now, through his blood and his sacrifice, been given a new identity. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a new spirit. He is in us, is what scripture tells us. He's made his home in us. If you are in Christ, the Jesus that Paul is talking about here has made his home in you. Do you know that? The person that Paul's describing here lives in me and is with me in all things. He is the creator God. He is the sustainer God. He is the God who holds all things together. And he is in me and with me like that. Doesn't that change? Wouldn't that change how I see and I understand myself when I leave this building today? If that's true, if if that Jesus is who he says he is and he is in me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, he is making us new creations in Christ and as a result, the old has gone and the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You, you could argue even just in these, whatever, seven, eight verses, that Paul is, is, is teaching the entirety of the Bible in these verses. He's saying he created, right? He's the creator God, by, for, and through whom all things were created. And we sinned, that's what Bible teaches, right? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, Sin puts us at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. And as a result, that creation was broken. That relationship was broken. And yet he came, and this passage says it, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He is the firstborn over the new humanity, right? The firstborn. He's saying he's first. He's before all things. He's the head of the family now. He's saying this, that Jesus is what it looks like to be fully human and in relationship with God. That's what he's saying. And as a result, because he's what it looks like to be fully human and fully in relationship with God, and he's the firstborn over a new humanity, we are now recreated. I know this is big theological stuff, but it's so practical. You are a new creation in Christ. You are recreated. He says, behold, I'm making all things new, right? You're new. This is true about you now. He finished his original creation with man and woman, right? The crowning act of creation. We just sang this. And he's starting now his recreation, his redemption with man and woman. 
This is who he truly is. That matters for us. Because just like in Genesis 2, before the fall, where man and woman were made in God's image and made to bear his image, right? If Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is, is what it looks like for man to be in relationship with God this way, we, as those who are in him, are to reflect in the image of God that we bear as well. This is really practical. Let me let me see if I can let me see if I can make it a little more practical. As creator, right? It says there that he's a creator who spoke the world into existence. That's what scripture teaches us, that he he literally said and it was. That means that he has the power to affect real change, doesn't it? He's that powerful. Now, we know that he's not like a genie. Jonathan talked about this last week about the will of God. He's not like a genie who we pray to and he, he kind of serves our will, but rather as the one with the perfect will and the power to act. He has the power to affect real change in our lives. Now, what that means, it can, it can mean he has the power to affect the circumstances in my life, right? He does. He has the power to change my circumstances, but he also has the power to recreate my heart and my attitudes and my affections, even if he doesn't change my circumstances, right? He can recreate me in those circumstances, not just change them. So you see how it's not just like, hey, Jesus made the world one day, and then not awesome. No, 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 that same Jesus who has re- creative power can recreate things. My heart, my mind, my attitude right now. As sustainer and the one who holds all things together, if that Jesus actually lives in me now, then I have in him the fruit of the Spirit to be somebody who's incredibly long-suffering, right? Incredibly committed, resilient in the face of adversity, right? I can be those things because I have the sustainer who holds all things together. I have him. See how it's not just theology? It matters out there. As firstborn, maybe some of you had an elder brother who set an example for you that you never could live up to. I'm not talking from personal experience. (laughs) No. He is our elder brother because isn't that what older brothers do, right? They set the tone for the whole family. But how did he set the tone for his family? Through his service and his love, through his dying to self, his self-emptying love, he used his position as elder brother and his role to serve not himself but us. He sets the tone for the whole family and he shows us, hey, hey, younger brothers, younger sisters, this is what it looks like to now live in light of who our father is. This is what it looks like to live dependent upon him. This is what it looks like to leave a life of, of, of trying to get glory for myself and saying, no, no, I don't need to get glory for myself because I'm, I'm meant to glorify him. 
He shows us how to live in light of who our Father is. And doesn't an elder brother step in? Have you ever had, maybe you had an older brother who defended you? He steps in when we get in trouble to defend us or to comfort us when we fall. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's our elder brother. He is head there. It says there that he's the head of the church. What does that mean? It means that he's the authority in my life, which, y'all, I got to tell you, a lot of you are exhausted. I get exhausted because of actually sitting in his seat in my life. I'm not made to be the authority in my life. Do you know how much of your exhaustion comes from trying to be head of your world when he's saying, no, 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 you're set free now to let him be head of your world, to lead me in all areas of my life? Do you see him for who he truly is? Do you see him? I mean, it's like in all great superhero movies. You guys know I've used Marvel movies enough at this point. You remember in Thor? Come on. Who's seen Thor? All right. At least a few people get this, right? Thor, big muscular guy with great hair. Uh, You remember when he gets thrown down to earth, right? He gets... He gets sent to earth. I mean, all, so many of these movies are just like a, just a couple degrees away from the truth, right? They really are. He gets sent to earth, and in this case, as a, as a poor elder brother who's obsessed, selfish, prideful, he gets sent to earth by his father to learn a lesson, right? He loses all of his power, and at the moment, finally, he learns some humility, and he's ready to die, right? He says, take my life. And what happens, you know, he, he dies and then he's resurrected because of the hammer and everything like that, right? His power returns. And what happens when his power returns? Jane looks at him and says, what? Someone say it. No one knows? Okay. She says, oh, my God. Exactly. She, all of a sudden, you know, all his armor comes on, the hammer comes down, and she sees him for who he truly is. He's been telling her all this time, this is who I am. This is, I'm from up here in Asgard and Rainbow Bridges and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, she sees it. And it's like, everything's changed. I know who he is now. It's not just talk. He's Thor. He's, he's Jesus, right? And she says, what? That's a nice look, you know? You look, that looks good on you. Do you see him for who he truly is? Because, because that is the reaction. Oh, my God. In the most reverent, holy way. Oh, Lord. This is who you are. Because when we see him for who he truly is, we understand that, which is Paul's fighting for that. Don't minimize it. When we see him for who he truly is, we can see what he's truly done for us. We can see ourselves for who we truly are. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Once, but now. You hear it? Once you were alienated, enemies, because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Remember we talked about the Bermuda Triangle, faith, hope, and love, Right? There's, there's two more triangles in this passage. The, the first triangle is this, that, that before Christ had done what he had done for you and I, 
What was true about us is this. We were aliens, we were enemies, and we were evil. Yeesh. Do I really see myself that way? Like, honestly. Like, apart from the work of Christ, would you say, man, I, I was that broken and that needy. I was an enemy of God's. I was alien, and I was evil. Like, it'll be fun in small group if you're in a small group to actually spend some time teasing out these metaphors or these words, but alien, like when you think of alien, I mean, you think of something like entirely other, right? Like, the, like I don't want to use more Marvel movies, but aliens, right? <laughs> aliens, right? Enemy? You know what an enemy is? An enemy is not somebody who's just kind of like, mm, no, we're not buds. An enemy is somebody who is actively working against your agenda, right? That's what an enemy is. So I, I was actively working against the will of God. I was an enemy of his. I was fighting for something that he doesn't fight for. He's fighting for me in a way. And then evil. I wrote down, I may not be the best employee. <laughs> like, I may not be the best soldier in the Lord's army, right? But evil? If I'm honest, I, I really don't believe that without Jesus doing what he did for me, it was really that dire. Like, I, I, am, I am Tommy Boy when Zelensky's trying to take over the company, right? And he says, hmm, he seems like a nice guy. And Richard's like, wake up! This guy is trying to take your life, right? And Paul's saying, wake up, Colossians. Wake up, Midtown. This is not some spiritual ladder to climb that apart from Christ and what he's done, enemy, evil, alien. That's who you were. But now, something's changed. Let me just say something about this. Does it surprise you that Paul isn't afraid to tell them how broke they were? Like, if you want to motivate people, right, and you want to, like, get them going in the right direction, you know, positive reinforcement, right, you know? Like, positive self-esteem. Like, I don't want to remind you of how busted it was, right? Wouldn't reminding of them, them of this lead them to a place of having a low view of themselves? And in some ways, I would say, yeah, because it's good to have that blown up if your self-esteem or your view of yourself is built on your performance, not on Christ, then I want you to know how bad it was. Like Jesus, at the woman, you remember the story in John 4 at the woman at the well, Samaritan woman? They're at the well and they're talking about drinking and all this stuff. You know, she's got a busted history, right? Multiple husbands, Woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty. I have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands. 
You have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not even your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And she said, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And goes on to talk about worshiping on the mountain, but eventually says this. Uh, the woman said, I know that Messiah, the Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything, everything to us. And Jesus said, I'm the one that you're speaking to. I am he. I hope this is connecting. You see what, you see what Jesus is doing? He's not afraid. Like, he didn't downplay her sin, right? He wasn't worried about get, leading her to a place of low self-esteem. In fact, what Jesus did is he said, no, let, let's get out the laundry list and let's look at how bad it was and is. And he exposed more of it in order that he could increase her awareness of the grace and forgiveness, in order to increase her knowledge of who he is. So I'm not afraid to tell you how bad it was. Because you cleaning all of that up, that's not going to lead to the healing and to the health and to the life that you want. So I'm not afraid to talk about how bad it was because it will teach you to put your eyes on me and see how good I am. I think sometimes culturally we've been taught that kind of a low view of self is our biggest issue. Just kind of got a low view of me. And we've learned I'm not, gonna, I'm not supposed to get my view of me uh, from your opinion of me, but I may swap out that for my opinion of me or my celebration of me. And ultimately we're saying your words are, are supreme to me or my words are supreme to me. And what Paul's saying is, no, there's a supreme word over that word. And it's his words because the verdict that you and I need is this. It's a verdict that I can't give you and you can't give me, and it's this. But now you are holy in his sight. You and I are made to have someone look upon us and say this. You're set apart. You are holy. You are loved. I'm holy in his sight now. And it's because of Christ's blood, not because of any work that you and I do, that I am now holy in the eyes of God the Father. But what's, what's so critical for us to understand is that he's saying here that even before you were, you were made holy in his sight by Christ's work, you already had and were in his crosshairs. <laughs> you had his look, his gaze, Right? His eyes were set upon you in your brokenness while you were enemies, while you were aliens, while you were evil. I see you and I'm coming to do this recreative work in you. And so now, now you're holy in his sight. You're set apart. You're now free from blemish. Think about that for a second. Man, I'm sweating. I'm excited about this. You're free from blemish. How much time do you and I spend in the mirror, in the spiritual mirror, countlessly spiritually nitpicking at all of my imperfections because I believe that that's what God wants me to be doing? Like that's real spiritual work, right? Just kind of getting in there and kind of doing all the CSI and all of my sin. When he's saying, no, 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 
You are without blemish. When I look at you, this is what I see, but you're looking at you with not my eyes. You're looking at you with some other set of eyes. I'm not saying there's not a place for examining your sin and repentance, but I'm just saying you're without blemish. You're holy in His sight. You cannot be accused anymore. Think of what it would be like to not spend time dealing with either the accusations of the world or the accusations you hurl on yourself that say, not enough. But now you're holy in His sight. You're free without blemish, without accusation. And I'll say, I'll address it here because I know it's a, it would be a sticking point. <clears throat> if you continue in your faith, established and firm. Ah, there it is, right? Something I've got to do in order to make it possible. Well, don't, don't forget. <laughs> He's not saying uh, if you have faith because you've already been given faith, hope, and love. Remember the triangle? <laughs> He's saying you actually walk in your new identity as being holy um, Think of that word holy. It is the word set apart. Think of how much time in your life you're trying to be set apart in the sight of somebody. And he's saying, you experience being set apart. You experience being without blemish. You experience what it means to, to leave a life of accusation. You experience that when in the faith and in the hope and in the love that you've already been given, you walk in those things. Not you muster those things. You walk in what he's already given you because he's given you those things too. It's like Ferris Bueller, right? Man, I'm full of the illustrations this morning, the old movie illustrations. He's saying, he's saying that Ferrari that's sitting in the garage that you never take out and drive, take it out and drive it. Because when you take out the faith and the hope and the love and you get on the road all of these things start to change. You stop trying to be set apart in someone's sight and you live in the fact that you are set apart. You stop trying to deal with all your blemishes and you realize Jesus has dealt with all of my blemishes and I can live in my new identity now. You stop trying to silence the voices of the accusation and they start getting drowned out because the gospel, the roar of the gospel engine is literally louder in your ears. I experience my new nature. I'm holy. I'm spotless. I'm free from accusation. And I only experience that when his eyes are the ones that I'm looking to. I'm holy in your sight. And when I don't experience those things, I can almost always trace it back to the fact that I'm looking into someone else's eyes, either my own or someone else's, to give me the verdict that only God himself can give me. So this week, I want you to literally ask yourself this question. Who gets to tell you who you are? Because Paul is saying, this is who Jesus is. And he, that guy, creator, sustainer, all this, he's telling you who you were. It was this broken, evil, alien enemy, and now it's holy, without blemish, free from accusation. Bam. That's the truth. Who gets to tell you who you are? Because if we're going to go on the journey of maturing, we have to leave this life, which is this. You get to tell me who I am. Because if you're the ones, 
I'm just using you as an example since you're here. Uh, if, we're, if I'm trying to get my verdict from my wife, then I'm going to have shame if I failed, right? And pride if I succeed. If we're going to mature, I leave the land of you tell me who I am. But I also leave the land of I tell me who I am, right? Because eventually, and I've done this plenty, I, I fail my own standards, right? <laughs> so shame when I fail my own standards for myself and pride when I keep them. And what Paul's saying is, is, would you let him tell you who you are? And this is who's telling you. Because God is supreme, says this, there's grace for you when you fail and you will. And there's rest and peace and not pride, but praise when you don't fail. I can praise him because when I walk in my identity, that's the fruit of him in my life. It's grace working in me, the mystery of his grace So if I'm going to walk in who he says I am, not in who I say I am or who anyone else says I am, then I have to turn up the volume on his word. I have to turn up the volume on his word supreme. I have to look into his eyes. That's why the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's sin to call unholy what God has called holy. And that's what he's called you. You see what we're doing? When I say I'm blemished, I'm calling something that he has said without blemish, blemished. His word is going beneath my word, my verdict. And he's saying, no, 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 look into my eyes. Because his word says this, my sin was that serious. That triangle was that bad. And his grace is that revolutionary. My grace is that good. It's that real. Ooh, I didn't leave enough time. Evidence you've met him. Do you know who he is? Do you have a proper view of him? Do you have a proper view of you? Well, evidence that you've met him, and there's lots of things we could say about this. But at the very end, I guess I'll just say this one thing. Um, he says, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which, Paul, I have become a servant. Now, if you know anything about the life of Paul, Paul was spending most of his life pre-conversion, trying to set himself apart through his own religious effort. So evidence that you have seen and been seen by Jesus, one is, is you stop trying to set yourself apart through your own effort, because Paul had stopped doing that. He had stopped obsessing about his blemishes. He had stopped living a life uh, of trying to deal with all the accusations through his own behavior. And what had shifted was, instead of the focus all being on Paul now, Paul's whole focus was this, I'm a servant. That's when you know. That's when you know you've been seen by Jesus, is you actually take the servant role because that's what he did, right? And he's in you. I take that servant role, I've become a servant of the gospel. And what Paul was doing is the very same thing that would happen and does happen in us, is we talk then about what we love and what loves us. You, no one needs to be trained in evangelism ultimately. You are natural evangelists. We all talk about what we love and what loves us. We all, when we're loved in a real powerful way, don't we all want to imitate what we love? 
I had an older brother who had college t-shirts. I was eight years younger than him, and I used to steal my brother's college t-shirts. I'd wear a t-shirt under it so that I wouldn't like pit stain it or anything like that when I go to high school. But I, I wanted to be my older brother, right? I wanted to put on his shirts. I wanted to look like him. And ultimately, what Paul's saying here is, is, is you're not you're not holding his sight like some figurine on a shelf that he just wants to sit there and admire. But you are literally, you've been, been moved into that position because you are now an ambassador of the gospel, free to be a servant of him. I, I, I stop being a self-promoting person and I start being a, a Christ-promoting person because I've been set free and I've got the verdict I need. I'm holy. I'm without blemish. I'm free from accusation. I'm going to show you a video here. Uh, at the at the end of this time, this is a video we'll be showing some of these um, throughout the year, really, are, and there's stories of people on the journey that I'm talking about. This is a couple small group leaders from one of our sister congregations in 12 South, and these are people who are leading discipleship group, and this is what they're saying as they lead a group, and you'll see this. We're going to gather together under the head, underneath Jesus. We're going to gather underneath his word his word supreme, his verdict, and in his presence. And what we do when we have small group and we do these discipleship relationships, we're doing what we're talking about this morning. I see him for who he truly is. I see myself for who I truly was and who I am now. And now I'm going to walk in the strength of that, okay? So hopefully this, this video will help connect some of that. And I'll, I'll close this and we'll sing. I think something that's really interesting is the idea of a disciple maker just being someone who's willing to trust Jesus and bring the word to you. The things that it's not are someone that has all the answers. It might not even be someone that's like older or farther along in life than you. Um, not someone that has some like special skill or power, but it's just someone that is connecting with Jesus on their own that has a a meaningful and intentional relationship with Jesus, that Jesus is doing work in their heart, um, that they have like capacity and faith and just um, bravery kind of to initiate towards someone else, to touch someone else's life and can be kind of messy. And I would just really say it's someone that believes in the power of the word and brings someone else there. You know, a lot of the times where I feel the most known and the most loved is when I have someone who has the capacity and the initiative to sit down and care and know what's going on and be willing to hear what I have going on and then tie that back to scripture. I feel challenged and I feel like I am engaging in my relationship with Jesus and this person. Um, and I've just loved that time. It's been very helpful for me. I felt very pursued in it. And I think it's really encouraged me to want to do the same thing for other people. You know, it's as I feel pursued and loved in that, I want to be able to share that with others. I haven't felt like, oh, I'm more dependent on her the more time that we spend together. I actually feel like I'm more dependent on the Lord the more time that we spend together because of that pattern of her, like pushing me to the Word and to prayer and to just connection with Jesus. Without discipleship, we would just be so much more stagnant. We had so much conflict early in our marriage and we knew we couldn't do it alone. We're so fortunate that people were willing to 
dive into the chaos. I can see in myself patterns of like where my anxiety or fear or anger used to take me and the new patterns of where they take me and there's not necessarily like a solution um, but there's a lot more hope, joy and just um, I guess like light. My identity would not be as defined by Jesus as it is. I really think I would just be, I'd have a lot less joy and I'd have fewer people in my life. I am Gabe and I am a disciple. And I'm Caitlin and I'm a disciple. Once you were alienated from God, we're enemies of your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about um, in a small group setting, getting together and, and remembering this is who the Lord is and what he's done for me. Uh, and, and locking arms, because that's what the, the, Christ is the head of the church, and we're the body. Locking arms is the body and saying, remember who you are. Walk in the truth of your identity. Um, we are servants of him now. Uh, and this is, this is the truest truths about us. And we can't do that alone. So if you're not a part of a group um, or have intentional relationships with another believer, uh, Brother and sister, it is, it is um, almost impossible. I would dare say it is impossible to live in what we've talked about in isolation. You can't do it. You, you have to be uh, told, not by another brother or sister, this is who you are based on what I think, but this is who you are based on what he thinks. And I need you to feed that truth to me all the time because uh, I'm a forgetful man, okay? So consider that an invitation. Uh, consider that... Um, an opportunity for us to step into the beauty of who Jesus truly is uh, and what he's done for us, okay? Let me pray for us. Lord, oh, thank you for your word. Um, thank you uh, that all these things are true about you and in you. Uh, and Lord, I can live so many days um, seemingly away from that truth and trying to even manufacture these things uh, in my own effort, Lord. I, I fear in many days that I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just as much of a Gnostic as, as the, the Colossians were trying to get through religious effort, what you can only give me. And so call us uh, back to the truth uh, of who you are and what you've done. Uh, may we naturally worship you uh, from this place of being uh, moved from alien and enemy and evil to daughter, son, um, child, uh, holy, blameless, spotless, uh, and free from accusation. Uh, Lord, may, that, may, may you turn up the volume of that truth in our hearts and minds this week, um, and may we sing that song like Paul did to the world around uh, that other people may see and hear. That's how good you are. We ask this in your name. Amen.